Well, right now, if you would open up your Bibles to the book of Ephesians. Ephesians chapter 4, verses 1 through 6. Si habla español, abran sus Biblias al libro de Efesios, Efesios capítulo 4, versículos 1 a 6. If you're new this Sunday, we have been in the book of Ephesians for almost two months, believe it or not. Uh, but if you don't have a Bible with you, that's perfectly fine. This is, this is uh, uh, a safe place for you to, to be able to come and say, oh, I don't have a Bible, because we have some under the chairs at the center aisle. And you know what? Even if this is the first time you've cracked open a Bible in a long time, or maybe the first time ever, it's a safe place for that too. We're all learning to one degree or another how to read and understand and apply God's Word to our lives. Years ago, as you've heard before, if you've been around here, a theologian named Arthur Wallace, he said, if you want to do well with your life, find out what God is doing in this generation and throw yourself wholly into it. And as you've heard before, what the book of Ephesians tells us is that the church is what God is doing in the world today. The church is what God is doing in the world today. And the first three chapters of Ephesians tell us what God has done. We've heard for the last seven weeks what God has done in three chapters of Ephesians. He has chosen a people and we have become that people. And he made us alive in Christ, each individually. We were previously spiritually dead, but in the richness of his mercy. He made us alive in Christ. But he went further and he reconciled us to himself through his son, Jesus Christ. And not only that, but he reconciled us to one another, breaking down the dividing wall of hostility that stood between us. God's great mystery, hidden from generations past, the church created in Christ Jesus. Now, beginning in chapter 4, the next three chapters of six chapters, so three and three, very nicely, conveniently divided, the next three chapters tell us how to live as members of this church. So with that, together, let's read beginning in Ephesians 4, 1. I... Therefore, a prisoner for the Lord, urge you to walk in a manner worthy of the calling to which you have been called, with all humility and gentleness, with patience, bearing with one another in love eager to maintain the unity of the Spirit in the bond of peace. Now there is one body and one Spirit, just as you were called to the one hope that belongs to your call. One Lord, one faith, one baptism, one God and Father of all, who is over all and through all, and in all. This is God's word. Would you pray with me? Heavenly Father, 
Thank you for what you have done. Thank you that you have done what needs to be done so that we have the freedom to walk in what you have called us to do. Thank you for your grace, for your mercy. Thank you for your love. Thank you that you have not called us to anything that you have not equipped us for. Thank you that you have not called us to accomplish anything that you have not already accomplished in your Son, Jesus Christ. Help us now to understand and to respond in a way that brings glory to your name. And in that name we pray. Amen. So the first three chapters, and I want you to get this, the first three chapters are indicatives. The next three chapters are imperatives. The first three, what God has done. The next three, what we must do. And we've said it before, and it's worth saying again, that the way Paul writes, it is incredibly instructive. Because imperatives, commands, they're always, they're always preceded by indicatives. Statements of truth. In other words, commands are always informed and motivated by statements of truth. In fact, that is how the whole New Testament is written. You would be hard-pressed to find a command in the New Testament that is not undergirded and, and laid with a foundation of a statement of what is true according to what God has done, specifically in His Son, Jesus Christ. The gospel, which is the message of Jesus Christ and Him, him crucified and risen and ascended on high, that is the basis for the entire Christian life. The whole of the Christian life is a response to God's work of grace. And that's a statement worth writing down right there. The whole of the Christian life is a response to God's work of grace. In fact, we have a book of the month. Not, I didn't plan on plugging this. But we have a book of the month this month sitting in the foyer called The Discipline of Grace by Jerry Bridges, which, which is a book all about how to live the Christian life motivated by the grace of the gospel. Christian life has never lived to earn God's grace or to, to get God to change his attitude toward you. Rather, Ephesians and the rest of the New Testament, it is a message that says God has done it all by grace. Now live the life that's been transformed by grace. And that's what Paul is saying here in Ephesians. And as you look down at Ephesians 4.1, look down there with me right now, the therefore right there is the hinge. That's the hinge between what God has done and what we must do. Paul moves on from what God has created in Christ to the new standards that are expected of what has been created. It's actually quite beautiful how these New Testament authors write, how, how God by His Spirit moved on these authors to write. And in today's passage... Paul summarizes those standards. So the next three chapters are going to be those standards. But this right here, this is a summary of what is to come for the next three chapters. This passage, it thus sets the tone for the remainder of the letter. And it provides the link with what has gone before. And it's always referencing what has gone before. So, in today's message, we're going to answer three questions. And these will serve the as an outline for our time together today. 
three questions. What? Why? And how? What, why, and how? Make it easy for you. What must we do? Why must we do it? And how must we do it? What, why, and how? Let's start with what. What, what must we do? Look at, look at verse 1 with me. Paul says, I therefore, a prisoner for the Lord, urge you to walk in a manner worthy of the calling to which you have been called. On August 4th of this year, just a few months ago, about 100 men and women sat in chairs in an auditorium in Irvine, that, that lovely city just, just to the south of Santa Ana, sitting in an auditorium on the campus of the University of California, Irvine. And what this was, was a ceremony. It was a ceremony comprised of the most recent graduating class of UCI's School of Medicine. And this ceremony was their white coat ceremony. It's a solemn and important ceremony, representing years of work, years of study, years of sleepless nights. And on August 4th, that was the day that they would be transformed from medical students into physicians. And right after each of them had come up on stage and received their white coats, Dr. Michael Stamos, Dean of the UCI School of Medicine, he addressed them. And this is what he said to them. Listen carefully. He said, you are a new generation of physicians. And the future of medicine. As physicians... You will maintain the time-honored principles embedded within the Hippocratic Oath, which, among other commitments, is a promise to treat patients with compassionate care, putting their interests ahead of your own. Did you hear that? I, I watched the recording of that ceremony just yesterday. As Dr. Stamos said those words, you almost hear an echo of Ephesians 4.1. Walk in a manner worthy of the calling to which you've been called. You have a high calling. Now walk in a manner worthy. Dr. Stamos is saying you have become physicians because of this high calling. Carry out your profession with the highest standard of selfless ethics and care, right? Because of what you have become, now walk accordingly. Paul is saying, church, as the church, as a result of your high calling, carry out your life together with the highest standards. But what is our calling? Well, very simply, our calling is to be the church, which is the great mystery revealed, hidden for ages. But, but to be the church, 
what does that mean? What, what is the calling? I, I mean, the, the people, the white coat ceremony, they, they were called to be physicians, but what does it mean to be a physician? It means to be a provider of health care. We're called to be the church. It's what God has made us. It's what we see in chapters 1 through 3, tethered out. But, but what does this mean? John Stott clarifies that Paul identifies two specific callings in chapters 1 through 3. Turn back to, to chapter 2, verse 10. Just one page back, probably, in your Bible. That the first of these two components of this calling is in chapter 2, verse 10, which is the call to be holy. The call to be holy. Paul says in 2.10, For we who have been made alive in Christ by grace through faith, for we are his workmanship, created, called, created in Christ Jesus, for good works, which God prepared beforehand that we should walk in them. Okay, so that's the first component of this high calling. But the second, the second component of the calling is the calling to unity. And this is where Paul has really gone to great lengths to assure that we understand the depth of our calling. And, and though we could read all of chapters 1 through 3 to get the fullness of this, look back at chapter 2, verse 13 through 16. Look at, look at 13 through 16. He says, But now in Christ Jesus, you who once were far off, you've been brought near by the blood of Christ. For he himself is our peace, who has made us both one. Speaking of Jews and Gentiles, people who were irreconcilably different culturally, he's made us both one and has broken down in his flesh the dividing wall of hostility. By abolishing the law of commandments expressed in ordinances that he might create in himself what? One new man. Literally, one new humanity. In place of the two so making peace. And verse 16, finally, and that he might reconcile us both, having been made one together, he might reconcile us both to God in one body through the cross, thereby killing the hostility. Through Christ, God has reconciled us to himself and to one another. He has created a unity that had never been seen in history before and never has been matched since. He has made us one. He's made us one. Now, notice this. You cannot miss this. Notice that Paul appeals to identity to drive activity. Paul appeals to our new identity in order to drive activity. Just as Dr. Stamos appealed to the new identity of the people in the seats before him, as physicians, you are. <laughs> you are is a much more compelling motivation than you should. Think about that. Those of you who are parents, Anytime your, your kid asks you, well, why, why, why should I do this? I don't want to do this. Why should I do this? It's so easy to say, well, because you should, or because I said so. 
how often do you really back up from that and go, because as a member of this family, this is how we act. As a member within the household of God, if your child is a believer, this is what it looks like to follow Christ and to walk in a manner worthy of the calling to which you have been called. You are is much more compelling motivation than you should. Author F.F. Bruce says, as members of a reputable family will have their family's good name in mind as they order their public conduct, so members of the church will have not only the name of the family to which they belong in mind, but the name of him who called it into being. You are. You are this new identity. I live accordingly. And notice, and, and, and this is a bit of a, of, a, of, a, of a tangent, but I don't want to miss this, because not only does Paul appeal to who they are as one united family, but he also throws in <laughs> who he is at the present moment. Look at verse 1. He says, I therefore, a prisoner of the Lord. He's not seeking pity. Chapter 3, verse 13, he already established. He says, I don't want you to lose heart because I'm in prison. I actually want you to be encouraged. Be of good courage. Take heart. But why is he saying then, I, Paul, a prisoner? <laughs> What he's saying is that whatever I command you from here on, I'm not doing it from a deck chair at a resort sipping a margarita. He, he's saying, how high is this calling? I'd gladly be imprisoned to walk in a manner worthy of this calling. That's how high a calling it is and how important it is to walk in a worthy manner. So, what is it to walk in a worthy manner? Well, we're going to skip over chapter 4, verse 2, but because that's the, that's the how in our third point. But look at verse 3. Look at verse 3 with me. Verse 3. Here's, the, here's the, the real what. What are we called to do? Eager to maintain the unity of the Spirit in the bond of peace. This is it. You have been united. Now live united. You have been made one. Now remain one. It costs the blood of the Son of God to achieve your unity. Now maintain that unity. That phrase, eager to maintain, the, 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 the grammatical construction of that phrase, it suggests initiative. It suggests constancy. It suggests you never stop doing this. It does not suggest passivity. It leaves no room for sitting back and waiting for others to do this for you. What he's saying to the modern church member is, if you're listening here and thinking, oh, this is, this is good. This is really good for that person to hear. They, they really need to improve in, in being more inclusive or, or unifying in their conduct toward others. Paul's saying, uh-uh, you're wrong. This is your responsibility and yours. And yours 
and yours and yours. He is saying, guard the unity that has become your identity. He's saying, Daniel, guard the unity that has become your identity. He's saying, Jennifer, guard the unity that has become your identity. He's saying, Jerry, guard the unity that has become your identity. Put your name in there. And he's saying, guard the unity that has become your identity and never stop. Never let up. Why? Why is this such, such a forceful imperative? Why? Well, because of the high calling to which you've been called. But, but listen, why is this calling such a high calling? What makes this such a high calling? Why take personal responsibility to maintain this unity? Because it could come at a cost to you. So why? Second point. Why must we do it? Why? Read verses 4 through 6 with me. Here's why. Because there is one body and one spirit. Just as you were called to the one hope that belongs to your call. One Lord, one faith, one baptism, one God and Father of all who is over all and through all and in all. You can't miss it, and I'm sure you didn't, but one was repeated seven times in those three verses. And this is a fascinating set of verses because it, it might sound like Paul is just sort of like going off on another rabbit trail again. But he's actually saying something beautiful and profound in this. A lot of scholars think that this is, this is sort of an, an ancient hymn or an ancient confession here. And it's, and it's saying something very particular, very profound. Three of the repetitions of one are members of the Trinity. And, and again, you might have heard it say before, you won't find the, the word Trinity in the Bible, but you find a constant identification of the three members of the triune God. One God, eternally existent in three persons, Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. He says in verse 4, one Spirit. Verse 5, one Lord. Verse 6, one God and Father of us all. And the other four repetitions of one relate to our Christian experience in relation to the three persons of the Trinity. So here's, here's how to look at these three verses. There's one Spirit who animates and indwells this one new body. So there's one body, but that new body comes from this one spirit that animates and indwells all of us. There is one Lord, Jesus Christ. He is our one confession of faith. He is the one into whom we were all baptized. He is our one hope of his future return to restore all things and make all things new. And then finally, one God and Father of us all, which is reference to one family. There is one Father that we share as a renewed family in Christ. So let me ask you a question. Is it possible to divide God the Father? Is it possible to disunite the Holy Spirit from himself? 
Will there ever be more than one Son of God? Will there ever be more than one Lord? No. So here's the upshot. Here's what's going on. It is no more possible or permissible to divide the church than it is to divide God himself. That's what, Paul, that's what Paul's getting at here. That's what God is saying through Paul here. It is no more possible to divide the church than to divide God himself. John Stott says the unity of the church is as indestructible and precious as the unity of God himself. As the unity of our triune God. It's pretty amazing, isn't it? But you say, what a bunch of hogwash. There are divisions all over in the church. How can you say that it's impossible to divide, to divide the church? The church has had divisions in it forever. For centuries. Paul's wrong. But let me ask you this. Okay. Is a dysfunctional family still a family? Is, is a family that is rife with conflict and backbiting and siblings who haven't talked to one another for, for years or decades, is it still a family? Yeah. Bonds of blood and covenant are bonds that are not broken. Is it a shame when there's disunity within a family? Yeah, it's a real shame. It's tragic. And that's what Paul is saying here. He's saying the church can never be divided. Your divisions, your, your sin and the threats against our, our unity cannot actually divide and disrupt and, and, and destroy the church because you have been united in a bond that is unbreakable. But what a shame it is if we don't preserve that. What a shame it is if we don't maintain that. You are more one than any one body in the history of humanity. You may not feel like that at some, at some points, but you are, as the local church. And since this is true, there should be none among us at Cross of Grace Church of Santa Ana who should be content to allow division to enter into our midst. Don't you agree? Don't you agree? There should be none among us who should be content to allow division to enter into our midst because of how precious and how indestructible our unity is in our triune God. So, finally, how? If we agree that this, this unity is worth maintaining and preserving, how do we do it? How do we do it? How do we eagerly, eagerly maintain the unity of the Spirit and the bond of peace in the church? Well, Paul tells us how. Third point, how must we do it? How do we maintain the unity of the Spirit and the bond of peace? Look at verse 2 with me. Here's how. With all humility, with all gentleness, with patience, Bearing with one another and in love. Take each of those 
on their own merit. And mind you, don't miss this, Paul has just given us some of the primary principles for how we should maintain unity within the church. So if you have your other ideas of how unity should be maintained, let these practical admonitions from Paul take precedence. First, humility. This is where we follow the way of our master, Jesus Christ. Same author of, of Ephesians writes in, in Philippians chapter 2, verse 8, he says, Jesus, being found in human form, so having, having condescended from the, the heavenly realms to be born as a man, what we celebrate every Christmas, which is why Christmas is so fantastic, Jesus humbled himself. Humbled himself, becoming obedient to the point of death, even death on a cross. You want to look at what humility means. You look at you look at him. You look at his whole manner of life. C.S. Lewis famously said, "Humility is not thinking less of yourself; it's thinking of yourself less often." I actually like how John Stott puts it even better, because you hear Philippians two eight in his definition. He says, "Humility." is the absence of the disposition to assert personal rights. So, so Paul's saying in Philippians 2.8, Jesus lived a life where he had every right to everything in all of creation. He's a creator of all things. He's the Lord over all things. Yet he chose not to assert those rights for the sake of you who believed in him. A humble person is not concerned about their right to be respected. A humble person is not concerned about their right to be recognized. A humble person is not concerned about their right to be apologized to. A humble person is not concerned about their right to fair treatment. And it's ironic that the people who are least concerned about those things are often the people who receive it most gratefully by others. Think of the people you most respect. The people you, you are most quick to, to ask forgiveness of and, and to forgive. So people aren't looking for that, demanding it. So here's one particular point of application. I want to speak to a, a particular group, to husbands and to leaders. Leaders in whatever realm you might lead in. Here's my encouragement to you. Work hard. Not to demand respect. Work hard not to demand respect. You see, biblically, as husbands, and we'll see this in Ephesians 5, that, that, that wives should respect their husbands, but husbands never demand respect. Give it. Give respect and earn it. Serve your wife. Serve those over whom you exercise leadership. If you're, if you're a leader in the business realm, give respect and earn that respect. Whether you lead in the church, in a marriage, in the business setting, the moment you demand respect, you will begin to see the cracks of division forming. Be humble. 
Practice the absence of the disposition to assert your personal rights. Second way, the second answer to how we must do it is with gentleness. With gentleness. Gentleness is humility directed toward others. Gentleness is what you feel when you encounter a humble person. Think about it. Isn't it true? When you encounter a humble person and they speak to you and they act toward you and they serve you, you feel their gentleness, don't you? And truly humble people don't just hang back in isolation. They don't isolate themselves from others. They actually give themselves toward others regularly. They serve, and they serve hard. They work hard. I was just thinking about this this morning, and, and not all of them are here, but I was just thinking, man, the three tallest people in our church are three of the most humble people that I know. They're, they're big, physical guys. Guys whose names rhyme with Finn, Fryan, and Farson. Guys are big, they're athletic guys, but they're also not weak. They're not timid. They, they, they serve and work hard. But you also encounter their humility when, when you, you talk with them and you encounter them, don't you? And what does that humility feel like? It feels like gentleness. Guys who are strong in Christ, but gentle as they serve others. And what does that produce? Produces, it produces unity. <laughs> I think we have so many examples of humility and gentleness around the church. I'll look to one another for those examples. Emulate one another where you see examples of Christ-likeness amongst one another. The third answer to, to how is, and we're going to take these, these both at the same time, but is patience and forbearance. What Paul says, Paul says, I'm going to get there. With patience, bearing with one another. Again, John Stott, and I love how he says this. It's just brutally honest. He says, patience is long-suffering toward aggravating people, such as God in Christ has shown toward us. Listen, humility works hard to not be offended. Humility is not easily offended. But the reality is, if we're going to live closely in our lives together in the church, and we're really, going to, we're really going to have our families spend a lot of time with one another, and we're going to come into each other's homes, and we're going to open ourselves up to the, the real mess of our internal lives, guarantee we're going to offend each other. As much as you work hard to, to refuse to be offended, you will be offended by the people in this room at some point or other. When you are, Paul says, exercise patience and long-suffering. Refuse to retaliate. Don't just run away. I'm done with this. Don't just avoid conflict. But be patient. Also, don't just jump right into the conflict and go at one another. That'd be an equal mistake. Be patient. Long-suffering. Humbly admitting, I might be part of the problem myself. Seek restoration, not personal justice. Seek the good of others, not asserting your personal rights. And what happens, again, what happens 
when we do this? Unity is maintained. What happens when we, when we refuse to be patient, when we're not long-suffering and we just give up? Division, disunity. Friends, this is, this is gold that Paul has for us here. Now, fourth, fourth and finally, the, the fifth component, but the fourth way to, to answer how here is the very last word of verse 2. Love. In love. 1 Corinthians 13, you might know that chapter well. It holds love up as the highest of all virtues. It is the virtue above all else that promotes unity. Paul says in Colossians 3.14, it literally binds everything together in perfect harmony. You, you want a good phrase to describe what unity is? It's people who are bound together <laughs> in perfect harmony. And love does that. And it makes sense, too, because the Bible speaks of Jesus as though he is the very embodiment of love. And it is Jesus who binds us. It is, it is his finished work and his resurrection and his rule and authority over the church which has bound us together. And we're bound together in love. Ephesians 2.5 says, the great love with which he loved us. It has bound us together. It's the summary of all that has gone before. The humility, the gentleness, the patience, the, the long-suffering. It's summed up in love. And, and not a love that just, that just tolerates everything. No, that's not what we're talking about. We're talking about love like Christ has loved. Love will maintain our unity. Now, here's where I want to end today. This is where I want to close today. And if you have your, your pens and a pad of paper, I want you to write this down. And even if you don't, maybe find a pen. Find something to write on. Write on the back of your hand. Don't write on the, I was going to say write on the pads of the chairs, but don't do that. We don't. This doesn't belong to us. Write this down. The local church should be the place where every follower of Christ who is ashamed of their past or the temptations they experience should expect to encounter love. I'll say that again. The local church should be the place where every follower of Christ who is ashamed of their past or the temptations that they experience should expect to encounter love. I want to bring a few categories up to the surface here. And I want to encourage us all to work hard to ensure the Cross of Grace Church of Santa Ana is a place where every single person could enter these doors seeking Christ and knowing that whatever they've got going on in them or in their, their past, they will, they will be able to open that up and encounter love. So here are a few categories, and these are sensitive categories. First, those who have had abortions in their past. Women who, who have made a decision to abort a pregnancy. If that's you, or you know somebody for whom that is true, you or that person 
should expect the church to be the place where you find a people happy to tell you of Jesus, whose forgiveness completely washes away the guilt of all who repent. Completely. No exceptions. And if that is the experience of somebody walking in the doors of this church, there should be a confidence that every person they encounter here is a person they're going to they're meet with that kind of love. Even if that has been part of their background. Here's another one. People who experience same-sex attraction. If that's you, or you know somebody for whom that's true, that's likely something that you or that person is wrestling with in a very private way, thinking, goodness gracious, if I let people know this, even though I want to follow Christ, I have these feelings, and I want to act on them, but I know I shouldn't, but I want to. But what if I tell people about this? And if I do, maybe it'll, it'll be unsafe. So how do I find help? Is this just something I've got to walk with alone? At Cross Great Church of Santa Ana, that should not be the case. That is not something that, if that's you, you should have to walk alone with. You should expect to live amongst a people here who see you as a brother or a sister in Christ and not any differently because of that temptation that you experience. Because we all experience temptations across the board. Here's another one. Those who have been divorced. And, and maybe you've been open with that and you've talked about it, but it's like, oh, I shared it that one time and that's it. I'm not talking about it again. Even though I still haven't really dealt with it, I still feel shame for it. This should be a place, my friends, where somebody who has who's been through a divorce, but who wishes to follow Christ, should expect to encounter a people who would tell you constantly of the endless grace of Jesus that is just as available today as it was the day they were saved. Here's another one. People who wrestle with addictions. People who have had addiction in their past or who maybe still wrestle with that, that desire, that temptation to, 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 to go out and use again. This church should be a place where anybody who has that in their past or even their current experience should expect to find a people who were all addicts to some kind of sin before we were saved by grace. <laughs> Ephesians 2.1 says we were slaves to sin. We were all addicts to some sort of sin. And we all experienced that temptation to go back to it. So in in one way, we're all in the same boat. There's no room for pride or, or self-elevation above one another. This should, be, this should be a place where we find a people who are urging one another to find satisfaction in Jesus and joyful satisfaction in Jesus. Here's the last one. People who have walked away from the faith but who've come back. 
And they know, they know that they've left <laughs> a path of destruction in their way. And they're coming back sheepishly and tentatively. There should be a place where anybody for whom that is true encounters a people, encounters a people who know and who understand and believe that were it not for God's grip on our lives, we would have walked away ten times. That our only hope, our only hope of, of, of finding ourselves at the end of the race, having finished well, is the grace of God, not our own doing. And if that's true, this should be a joyful place for anybody with that background, or maybe even there's a category that I haven't even mentioned that you're thinking of. Whatever you're thinking of, this should be a place where that person or you should and will encounter the love of God in Jesus Christ in the people here. Friends, let's aspire to be that kind of church. And let me just give an invitation here. A very serious invitation. If any of what I just mentioned describes you or your current experience and you have hidden it, because of fear for how people might respond or how the pastors of this church would respond, let me encourage you. I know how hard, I don't know, I, I imagine how hard it would be to open up about that, but don't let it remain hidden. D don't leave it in the dark, away from the possibility of being exposed to the grace of God through Jesus Christ and the restoration that can be found in community. I would love to talk to you today. I know Jeff would as well. And there are so many people in here who I know right now are probably saying like, yeah, I'd love for you to talk to me too. Because I'd love to pray with you. And I would love to help you with that. And I'd love to remind you of how great the grace of God in Jesus Christ is. That's what the love of God within the community of Christ that has been created through the blood of Christ. That's what it looks like. So if that's you, come and talk to us. And it doesn't have to be talking to everybody all at once. Just come and talk to, to one person. Bring that under the light. And let's serve one another. Let's love one another with the love of Jesus. Guard the unity that has become your identity. We've been united in Christ. Let's be the most united church in the city of Santa Ana. Would you pray with me? Oh, Heavenly Father, how good you are. How good it is to be the church. To be a group of people, small group of people in this city who've been called to the highest calling that we could imagine. Would you help us to walk in a manner worthy of the call? Would you help us to walk in humility and gentleness and patience and forbearance and in love? Help us to maintain the unity, to guard the unity that has become our identity in Christ. Would you do this among us and in us and through us and for us to the glory of your name? Amen.